Humor me for a moment. Imagine you're standing in a forest in New England. If you're from the East Coast, you have an unfair advantage here. Maybe you're thinking about the sun-dappled ferns that mark a well-worn hiking trail, or a favorite oak tree. Now, try and imagine this forest as it was just 100 years ago. What plants are dotting the floor? What trees are ruling over them? What do they look like? Unfortunately, not even the New Englanders will have gotten this scene right. That's because the human brain can't generate a perfect picture of something it's never seen. And in 1900, the forests of the East Coast weren't ruled by oaks, or pines, or hemlocks, or cedars. The fallen king of New England was something else entirely. Hello, and welcome to a brand new podcast from the Mac Weekly, your student newspaper. You might be wondering, why did I press play just to hear some rando wax poetic over trees, and why is the voice I'm hearing not that of Groveland legend Cory Suzuki? That's because this podcast isn't about McAllister, or Minnesota, or even necessarily about the news, and because Cory can't be everywhere at once. As for who is ruling the forests in the year 1900, we'll get there. When we do, maybe you'll see why they were so important. I'm Catherine Irving, and this is The Abstract. Here on The Abstract, we're going to talk about scientific research, from its profuse failures to its precious moments of triumph and all the controversies and uphill battles in between. And for a new podcast's first episode, it's only natural that we explore a field of study that's all about new beginnings, restoration ecology. In March of 2019, the UN General Assembly made a declaration. The next decade, from 2021 to 2030, will be known as the UN Decade of Ecosystem Restoration. The UN hopes that the decade will, quote, unite the world behind a common goal, preventing, halting, and reversing the degradation of ecosystems worldwide. Why do we need this? Well, there's a number of reasons for that. And at the moment where we are in a COVID pandemic, I think we can see even more reasons for why we can do that. Because we do need to have a look at how We are arranging ourselves what it is, what future it is that we want. That's Meta Wilkie, director of the Forest Policy and Research Division of the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations. She is speaking on a June 2020 webinar about the decade. We've seen that we have an opportunity here with the economic recession that's coming after the COVID crisis, where we've had a halt of activities, that we can build back better. And in order to do so, we need to make sure that we release all of the efforts that we can through nature-based solutions. And ecosystem restoration is certainly one of those. It can help with the current crisis that we have on land degradation, on biodiversity, on climate, and on the economic crisis as well. In 2020, we're at a pivotal turning point for our planet. Meta says the loss of land to the climate crisis is hurting more than 3.2 billion people we've seen a resulting loss of ecosystem services equivalent to a 10% drop in the global GDP. 
70% of our wetlands in the last century and over 420 million acres of forest have been lost since 1990. Coral reefs and seagrass beds haven't fared much better. Meta argues that we must repair this damage in order to create a sustainable future. We also know that we cannot achieve the sustainable development goals and the agenda, agenda 2030, the future we want, unless we have a healthy biosphere as the foundation. If we don't have healthy ecosystems, we cannot have a healthy society and we cannot have a healthy economy. So it is of ultimate importance that we try to see how we can better conserve and restore the natural resources that we have. But what will it take to repair that damage, to rebuild our natural resources? That's when researchers turn to restoration ecology. Restoration ecology is the scientific study which supports ecosystem restoration. Where restoration ecology looks at the landscape historically and scientifically to analyze potential practices, ecosystem restoration takes that knowledge and puts it into action. Restoration ecology is about building a relationship between humans and the ecosystems we live in. While some think a laissez-faire approach to handling wild places is the best way, restoration ecologists take a more hands-on approach, actively experimenting on and working within the places they study. Whether they're working in complete wilderness or in the hustle and bustle of a city, restoration ecologists focus on what they can do with what they have. The field is surprisingly interdisciplinary. Researchers have approached it with dozens of different backgrounds, from genetic engineering to land management to geochemistry. This combined effort will hopefully generate landscapes that are productive for humans, animals, and for climate purposes. on the decade is led primarily by European and Central American countries, with El Salvador being the main country to push ecosystem restoration. The U.S. has been quiet on this one, but that doesn't mean there isn't incredibly important work to be done here, or that this work isn't already underway. During this three-part series, we'll be exploring American-based restoration projects, and how their work could change the way the world thinks about restoration ecology as a field. The first of these projects came to my attention one lazy afternoon in early May. On that afternoon, I was listening to music in my room when I heard the sound of distressed voices. At the time, there was a hideous brown paisley couch in the living room, and as I descended the stairs, I found my friend and housemate, Christine, sprawled across it in near tears. Christine informed me that she had just read a book titled The Overstory, and by that I mean she had read the first 12 pages before becoming so emotional that she had to stop. The Overstory is a book about nine people battling deforestation, and the passage that had upset Christine so deeply chronicled devastation and tragedy on a national scale, a huge epidemic that led to millions of deaths across the eastern seaboard. The victims? One of the most iconic species in U.S. history, the American chestnut tree. American chestnut was one of the most prominent uh, deciduous trees in eastern U.S. forests. That's Dr. Andrew Newhouse, a researcher and member of the American Chestnut Research and Restoration Project at the State University of New York College of Environmental Science and Forestry, better known as SUNY ESF. According to him, the American Chestnut once grew across the entire East Coast, all the way from Maine to Georgia. Prior to European settlement and kind of the past couple thousand years, it was this really prominent tree. Um, it was important to a, number, a variety of wildlife, just the the, the prominence, I guess, the, the common uh, nature of this tree meant it was part of habitats, but also the nut production is probably what it's most well known for. The, the chestnuts were a very consistent crop in contrast to oaks that uh, kind of make intermittent or mast type crops. 
The chestnut's ubiquity and consistency made it universally known and loved. The tree's annual nut crop was a staple in the diets of wildlife, indigenous people, livestock, and Europeans alike. Europeans also used the chestnut for timber, and many wrote accounts of roasting chestnuts by the fire in the winter, or climbing upon their giant limbs as a child. But it was the arrival of the Europeans that ultimately meant the end for the American chestnut, 400 years later. In the late 1800s, people started importing a variety of exotic species, I guess. They, they, they liked um, interesting ornamental type trees for gardens or, or botanical gardens and things like that, maybe private gardens too. And so one of the things that they were importing was Japanese chestnut trees. And what we didn't really understand at the time was that when you're importing trees, you're not just importing the, the organism you're looking at, but microbes can live on trees also and come with them. And there was a fungus called Cryphonectria parasitica, we now know it as the chestnut blight fungus, that lived on these trees. And in Asia, in Japanese chestnuts and Chinese chestnuts, this fungus doesn't cause a lot of damage to living trees typically. It's, it's associated, it's called a saprophyte, and it kind of eats dead wood if a branch dies from something else, but it doesn't really attack the living trees. But when this fungus got to the United States after it was imported on these, uh, these ornamental trees, uh, the American chestnuts didn't have any defenses against this fungus. And so it turns out it does become a, a parasite or a more active pathogen on American chestnuts. And over the course of maybe a year or two after it infects the tree, it uh, can kill a mature tree down to the ground. At this point, the chestnut's universality became its downfall. When the chestnut blight was first discovered in the New York Zoological Gardens in 1904, few paid it much attention. The chestnut was so widespread and well-established that they thought nothing could threaten it. Unchecked, the fungus's spores spread rapidly from tree to tree. By the time people began to worry for the chestnut's livelihood, it was too late. The American chestnut all but vanished from the United States within 40 years of the blight's introduction. In the tree's place, a shrub a fraction the size. American chestnuts aren't extinct or even endangered because the roots live and they can send up new sprouts, but those new sprouts only typically live for maybe five or ten years before they get reinfected by the blight and killed back to the ground. So um, that's where we are now, is there are still probably millions of American chestnut trees in the woods, but it's kind of this understory shrub instead of the huge, prominent, uh, majestic tree that it once was. And these young sprouts aren't just shadows of what they once were, they're also less useful. The shrubs can't offer the valuable nuts and lumber that wildlife and livestock relied on. A hundred years later, and the only evidence of the tree's existence in the wild are a few dying specimens, trees so plain that only a trained eye could distinguish them. Humans and wildlife alike made the necessary transition to using other nuts, other lumber, but no other tree compared in nutritional value, in consistency, or in quality to the chestnut. My housemate was not the only one deeply affected by the iconic tree's demise. Your friend who had this very emotional reaction to the story of the American chestnut in the book, that's the case for a lot of people. A lot of people either have memories or have you know grandparents who told them about the American chestnut, and and it, it is a powerful story and really has this, this uh, kind of societal and emotional importance. Um, to, to a lot of people. 
It's been more than a hundred years since chestnuts ruled over American forests, and few remain who saw it in all its glory. But what if we could tell today's generations that there's more hope for the tree than we thought? What if we could tell them that this near-extinct species is rising from the dead? From the moment the tree became functionally extinct, those who recognized its importance did everything in their power to bring it back. But they only had two options. They could replace the lost American chestnuts, planting the blight-resistant Chinese chestnut instead, or they could crossbreed, try to breed the Chinese chestnut with the American chestnut. Andrew Newhouse says both of these efforts failed. The Chinese chestnut's shape and typical habitat were too different from the American chestnut, making it poorly equipped to take over the American chestnut's old range. And crossbreeding the two species failed to produce a blight-resistant tree that resembled the American chestnut. Then along came William A. Powell, Andrew Newhouse's PhD advisor. William Powell had a background in plant genetics and biology, and in grad school he became fascinated with the chestnut's tragic story. After taking a job at SUNY ESF, he co-founded the American Chestnut Research and Restoration Project. This project was different. Unlike its predecessors, it didn't involve the Chinese chestnut or crossbreeding at all. Instead, Powell went for a much more daring approach, genetic modification. Instead of traditional breeding with, with uh, other species that were recognized to be blight resistant, uh, our work at SUNY ESF involves adding a single gene. So instead of replacing a good portion of the genome, like you essentially would with, with breeding, we're adding one gene. SUNY ESF's project works by adding a gene from one organism into the genome of another, a process called transgenesis. Using transgenesis, the original genetic composition of the American chestnut is completely preserved. Not only that, the added transgene comes from wheat, a plant we already know and use all the time. The way it works is really unique because it's not an antifungal gene. It's not a pesticide that, that kills or repels the blight fungus, but instead it um, protects the tree from one of the main mechanisms the fungus uses in its kind of initial attack, and that's the release of a toxin called oxalic acid. And so this enzyme, oxalate oxidase, breaks down that toxin and prevents it from causing as much damage to the tree without affecting the fungal organism itself. SUNY has big dreams for its creation. They have plans to grow at least 10,000 blight-resistant American chestnut trees in the next five years to jumpstart the restoration process. The tree seems almost too good to be true, a blight-resistant chestnut that looks and behaves identically to the original. And Andrew Newhouse and his fellow researchers are ready to move forward to the next stage of their project, spreading the tree across a larger area and beginning to use it for restoration purposes. But the team has one more major obstacle. They need to prove that their genetically modified tree is not a danger to the environment. Indeed, the project has its fair share of skeptics. The words genetically engineered and GMO have a charge to them. Organisms bearing those titles are usually met with discomfort and disapproval. And the American chestnut's approval process is different from most GMOs. The majority of plant biotechnology work happens in agriculture. That means that most GMOs are crops that are confined to specific areas and are maintained regularly by humans. But SUNY ESF imagines their chestnut becoming part of the natural ecosystems, an integral species in the forests of the East Coast, like they were before European colonists arrived. They hope that genetically modified chestnuts will grow and reproduce outside of the bounds of human control. They'll become part of the wild again. This is the first time that any transgenic tree has been created with the intention of becoming wild, and without the intention of a prophet. But there are a lot of questions about risk. And the chief concern of federal authorities is that these new trees could hurt other organisms in ways that the original chestnut did not.
So because of the techniques that we're using of, of biotechnology and, and transgenesis, I would say agrobacterium transformation is the specific name for the technique we use, that's regulated by three different agencies in the U.S., three different federal agencies. And because of that, we can't just hand them out right now. Those agencies are the Food and Drug Administration, the Environmental Protection Agency, and the U.S. Department of Agriculture. In order to spread the chestnut into the wild, SUNY ESF needs to get approval from all three. FDA, I'll start with, is interested in food safety for people and livestock primarily. And since people and livestock will eat American chestnuts, um, the FDA is involved. And we've done a variety of tests, especially focusing on uh, composition. So, so like the ingredient and nutrition facts label that you'd see in a packaged food needs to come from an established testing lab. And how much of the nut is fat versus protein versus fiber and and minerals and so on. So we've done a series of uh, composition tests and shown that the transgenic nuts are equivalent to non-transgenic nuts in every way that we can test. And then the FDA is also concerned with allergenicity and toxicity, and we haven't found any evidence that, that allergens or toxins would be different in this transgenic crop. The second agency, the EPA, is focused on pesticide safety. They want to make sure that the transgenic tree's new blight-fighting enzyme won't cause damage to other unintended targets. So we have to basically demonstrate that um, any mechanisms in this tree wouldn't affect other microbes, other types of pests. And like I described, that unique mechanism of, of uh, breaking down the toxin instead of interfering with the organism is a really important kind of part of that uh, regulatory package, I guess. So that's kind of what we're focusing on for the EPA, is that since this is so specific to this one toxin, um, it shouldn't affect other types of pests. Andrew Newhouse also points out that the transgene source, wheat, has been a staple in American diets for years. It's so widespread in the environment, since people are already eating this, and since it's so familiar to both wildlife and people, that um, it's, it's, there isn't any reason to expect it would become harmful in chestnut compared to many of these other things. And the final agency, the USDA, is concerned with the safety of plants. They want to make sure that the new chestnut is not going to become a weed that threatens the health of vegetation. But Newhouse and the rest of the team have done their jobs, and the USDA has already given their approval. That means SUNY ESF has a little more freedom to grow their chestnut in confined areas, so they can watch them and make sure they're ready to be released. But still, the project has gotten some backlash. The American Chestnut Foundation, a near 40-year-old organization that partnered with William Powell and SUNY ESF to revive the tree, has seen longtime members depart because they were not comfortable with the supporting a genetically modified tree, no matter what guarantees and fail-safes were attached. A group called the Campaign to Stop GE Trees has been very vocal in its opposition to the transgenic chestnut, publishing a 40-page report called Biotechnology for Forest Health, the test case of the genetically engineered chestnut. In this report, the authors note that there are direct and indirect financial and other links between the American Chestnut Foundation, SUNY ESF, and biotechnology companies Arborgen and Monsanto. Monsanto in particular is infamous for its use of genetically modified crops and toxic herbicides. Arborgen and Monsanto don't have much to gain from SUNY ESF's chestnut tree, which is a not-for-profit product meant to restore keystone species. But the Campaign to Stop GE Trees argues that approving the chestnut sets a precedent for commercial, genetically engineered trees to make their way onto American soil. They also say that the risks that SUNY ESF is working to minimize are nonetheless too great, and that the tree could have disastrous effects on forests nationwide. Andrew Newhouse, though, thinks that the American chestnut will set a different kind of precedent, 
one that can be valuable to the success of the UN Decade of Restoration? That's a, a, a big question in a lot of people's minds is what the regulators are going to do with this. But if that moves forward, I think it'll really open things up and allow um, other, other uses of genetic engineering to address environmental problems. Um, we've already had uh, people approach us to talk about things, uh, other diseases in, in other trees, um, but even unrelated things like um, coral reef uh, threats right now. Both the ocean warming and ocean acidification are threats to coral reefs, and you've probably heard about bleaching and, and some of these, these problems with corals. And so these research groups on corals are thinking about using biotechnology as one potential tool. There are exciting uh, applications of biotechnology, and I sure wouldn't say it's the you know, best tool for every application, but it's it's an important tool for some applications and it should be should be at least part of the conversation as we're talking about conservation. Whether the chestnut will open the doors for conservation or for companies, and whether it will save the forests or shatter them, will become apparent as the decade progresses. In the meantime, Andrew Newhouse and other researchers have begun to think about other potential future problems. If SUNY gets the go-ahead to start planting chestnuts in the wild, for example, where will they go? In the century since the chestnut's demise, other trees and vegetation have filled the gaps, leaving less room for new trees. We don't really want to cut down healthy forests just to plant American chestnuts, right? But there are a couple of um, types of environments like uh, abandoned mines. Mining sites uh, might be kind of uniquely suitable for American chestnut because it likes acidic soil. It's very well drained and that describes uh, many mining sites. Um, but also kind of abandoned farm fields are, are uh, common in some parts of the range. Um, and we're actually in the process of testing kind of partial thinnings of forests. So what would really be more similar to what's already used for forest, uh, kind of forest improvement or restoration scenarios, or maybe eliminating some of the just invasive shrubs that are common in some areas. And does that kind of thin things out enough to allow American chestnut establishment? Another open question is the longevity of the chestnut. Given the limited population of breeding American chestnuts, how will a team generate enough genetic diversity to ensure the species remains viable for generations to come? The question of the chestnut's resiliency isn't limited to biodiversity either. In the century since the chestnut was last dominant, the climate has changed at a drastic rate. The range the chestnut would occupy now is likely much more northward than it was in the past. One of the big pushes in our kind of collective restoration efforts or your project right now is looking at uh, genetic diversity and resilience in American chestnut populations. And so the gene that we've added is only in one, we call it a genetic background, in one line of trees. And so that means there's essentially no genetic diversity in that initial founding line. And so what we're trying to do is take that initial tree and then outcross it to, to breed it out to unrelated American chestnut trees. And so we're kind of early in that process. We've done a couple of generations worth of breeding, but we're working closely with a group called the American Chestnut Foundation. And they've uh, done some modeling and kind of forecasting and, and looking at how much diversity would really be appropriate to 
produce a, a robust and resilient population that could be used for restoration. And that includes things like trees that are already adapted to different parts of the American chestnut range. And so we would be focusing, you know, intentionally selecting trees from the southern parts of the range, maybe the Atlantic and maybe the more of the northern parts of the range, and really intentionally including some of those adaptations to different climates that are already present across the population. So those can be maintained moving forward. But despite these challenges, Newhouse and the rest of the team are on the cusp of success with their blight-resistant tree. If they can get the approval of the EPA and the FDA, their options for future genetic engineering restoration projects will open. Yeah, there's a long list of trees that with, uh, with threats. You're probably familiar with some, some like the emerald ash borer on ash trees. We haven't really started working on ash, but that's the kind of thing that if things go well with chestnut, um, that's, that's one of the, the other questions that, that might be addressed with, uh, with the biotechnology. The American chestnut's phoenix-like rise from the ashes may be the most well-documented example of restoration ecology in the United States, but it's not necessarily representative of the field as a whole. Genetic engineering is a new and exciting field, and the American chestnut is a beloved tree. But in order to achieve the scale of restoration outlined by the United Nations, we're going to need to start working on a larger scale than just one or two species, and we're going to have to do it using a less time-intensive method. Next time, on The Abstract, we move away from the forests of the east and into the open plains of the west for a project that's pioneering the restoration of an entire ecosystem. The organization behind it hasn't attracted as much mainstream media attention as the groundbreaking chestnut. However, in their area of operation, this project is a household name, and not for good reasons. In the next episode, we'll explore what they're all about and ask some important questions about the purpose and value of ecosystem restoration. This episode was reported and produced by me, Katherine Irving. Our media editor and audio engineer is Corey Suzuki, and our theme music is by the Blue Dot Sessions. If you enjoyed this episode of The Abstract and you want to be a part of its creation, reach out to us at kirving at mcallister.edu. Whether you're interested in researching, writing, editing, guest hosting, or literally anything else, we need you badly and would love for you to join the team. Once again, you can reach me at kirving at mcallister.edu if you're interested or if you have any thoughts about the episode you'd like to share. The Abstract is a podcast from the Mac Weekly, your independent student newspaper. For more news like this, subscribe to our newsletter at themacweekly.com and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Mac Weekly. I'm Catherine Irving. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.